Father in heaven, we come now to this which is your word. I pray uh, that you would enable us to listen well, to think well. And Father, you would help us to understand and most especially would help us to believe so that we can live in such a way that pleases you, that brings you glory, that shows forth the truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So, Father, help us now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to 1 Timothy in chapter 6. I just want to read the first two verses. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, please. And hear the word of God. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers, rather. They must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Seems like, at least to me, forever since we've been in First Timothy. And so let me just recap very quickly. Remember that Paul, this apostle, is writing to Timothy, a young man who's a pastor in a church in Ephesus. So Paul, the apostle, mentor to Timothy, writing to him. And he's writing to him, he says, for the purpose of instructing Timothy and instructing the church how they're to conduct themselves as the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and support of the truth. He says, Timothy, I want to explain to you, I want to instruct you how, how you're to conduct yourself as the pastor. Church, I want to instruct you how you're to live as church. And all of that, of course, the way he instructs them is conditioned by that which is true of them. That which is true of them is that they are, in fact, the household of God. Household, that is the very dwelling place of God. He says, God dwells among you. Household in the sense that you're family. God is your father, you're family together. So, I want to instruct you as to how to conduct yourself because you're the household of God. He dwells among you, you're his family. You're the church of the living God. Church, that is, that you've been called out from the world to be this company of people who is indwelt by God and lives together as the family of God. And you're the church of the living God. God is alive and he lives among you. And here's a distinction that you mustn't ever forget. That you're a pillar and support of the truth. That is, you, church, have the truth. The the truth has been given to you. You're a steward of it, a trustee of it. You hold it. And thus, as the trustee of this truth, you must guard it to make sure it remains the truth. That is, it is always that which is true, given what the apostles have taught concerning Jesus, concerning the gospel. That's yours to do. Guard this truth. Not only guard it, but of course, live it. Believe it and live it. And not only believe it and live it, but proclaim it. It's, it's yours. You're holding it for the whole world, if you will. Now take it and deliver it. Make sure that this word that is true, that is pure, that's guarded, that is the truth that the apostles have laid down, is believed by you, lived by you, and taken out and proclaimed. So that's what Paul's doing. So he says, this is how you're supposed to now live. Obviously, 
Paul doesn't tell them everything that they need to know about church. Paul doesn't tell Timothy everything he needs to know about being a pastor. But he lays out in the context of this church in Ephesus that which he believes they need to know. Thus, helpful, authoritative for us as well. So it didn't surprise us when we found that Paul was saying, deal with those who are teaching false doctrine. If they're not teaching the truth, deal with them. Uh, because you've been given this truth. You're a pillar and support of the truth. So, so you, you can't abdicate that responsibility. If those, there are people there in Ephesus who are teaching that which isn't true, they're in the church, deal with them and, and call them to repentance or even, worst case scenario, expel them. It doesn't surprise us. Then he says, all right, now when you gather as church, I want you to pray. And I want you to pray for all kinds of people. I want you to pray for all kinds of people because you have this truth. And this truth of the gospel is that there's only one mediator between God and human beings, and that's Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel you have that. So pray that all people would not only hear this gospel, but believe it. Pray for all of them. That's their only hope, that they would believe in the Lord Jesus. And then he speaks to these men, and he says, pray. Pray with hands lifted up. Pray for all kinds of people. Pray without quarreling. When you gather together, make sure there's certain relationships between men and women in the context of, of the church. Make sure all that is true. Women, be careful how you dress. He speaks to them. Must have been an issue there. He says to make sure that you're dressed in such a way that doesn't draw attention to yourself, but rather dress in such a way that draws attention, if you will, to God. Don't draw attention to yourself, but to God. So he speaks to them even of how they're to dress. He says, in organizing yourselves, there'll be leaders among you called elders. Choose wisely. Here's the criteria upon which to choose. There are those who will lead you in service. They're called deacons, and they're the ones who serve. So choose wisely. Here's the criteria. Here's how they're to lead you. He speaks to Timothy and says, make sure when the church gathers that you read the scripture. Don't neglect that. They need to hear it. There's something about the gathering of the people of God and the reading of the scripture, and we listen to it and, and hear it. He says it's important each week as you gather to do that. Make sure you preach. It's necessary for people to hear this word. So Timothy, even though you're young and even though you may not think you're all that good at this, Timothy, you need to keep on preaching because this is a means by which God uh, gives grace to his people. And he says, in fact, since you're a family, make sure that in your speaking to one another, you, you even consider one another as, as family members. So, Timothy, you're a young man. Consider the older men as fathers, the older women as mothers, uh, your, your, your peers as brothers and sisters. So, so that's the sense in which you'd understand this relationship that you have with the people in the context of your church. Timothy, make sure that you're taking care of those who are most needy, the most marginalized. In that culture, it seems to be. In that church, it seems to have been widows who have no family to help them. He says, if there are widows who have no family to support them, Timothy, take care of them. Make sure that the church is honoring them, is helping them. So that's crucial in that regard. And now we come to this passage that, that somewhat startles us because he speaks to bondservants. Really, the word is slaves. He speaks to slaves, and part of what startles us as we read this is that Paul doesn't condemn slavery. We'd expect him to do that. We would do that if we were writing to slaves. We'd say, hey, this is a problem. Slavery shouldn't exist. 
But yet Paul doesn't seem to condemn it. He doesn't condone it. He just simply speaks to slaves in their position, in that place. And he says, here's how you're to live as a slave in this, in this culture. And we know that slavery was rampant in the Roman Empire. Uh, statistics tell us, historians tell us, that one-third to perhaps one-half of the residents in the Roman Empire were slaves. What that would mean is that if we were in the Roman Empire, 30 to 50% of us in this congregation would be slaves. Now, one of the reasons, it seems, that Paul doesn't condemn slavery is that this kind of slavery seems to be very different, though still slavery, very different than the the U.S. experience, what happened in our history, that dreadful, dark, those dreadful, dark centuries or at least this point of slavery in the 18th and 19th century. It's, in fact, the Bible condemns that kind of slavery. It outright condemns that kind of slavery. Sadly, in our history, there were those during that period of time who said that it didn't, who said that the Bible actually condoned slavery and those used the scripture badly, blasphemously to condone that which the scripture actually condemned. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, for instance, uh, the Israelites are told that you can never kidnap another Israelite and sell him into slavery as property. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Timothy in chapter 1, verse 10, this. Well, let me begin with verse 8. He writes, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding that the, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now this little word enslavers means those who take someone captive in order to sell them into slavery. That was outlawed, condemned in the scripture. Um, And so, clearly, Paul understands it. So as he writes to these slaves, either he's overlooking that, or these slaves are, are different than that. They haven't been kidnapped. They haven't been sold into slavery in that same sense. Because you see, in ancient Rome... This kind of slavery was more akin to what we'd call an indentured servitude. Someone would become a slave, could become a slave, because they owed a debt. And therefore, to pay off the debt, they gave themselves, if you will, to the person to whom they owed the debt. And they would work for that person until that debt was paid. Sometimes that debt took their whole lives to pay, but that was the agreement. That was the debt that was paid. Uh, Sometimes people were slaves because they were born into those families as children of slaves were slaves. It could be that a person knew themselves to be poverty-stricken. They had nothing, and so they would sell themselves to someone else in order to be able to have something, to have a roof, to have food. Now, I don't want to glamorize this at all. It's still slavery. In ancient Rome, a slave was not considered a person. A slave was considered as an asset on the books, but not a person. 
Many were treated quite well, but the system obviously had great opportunities for abuse, but still different than our experience in the 18th and 19th century. One author puts it like this. He says, this slavery that is outlawed in the scripture and was practiced in the 18th and 19th century in Britain, in the U.S. and elsewhere, was a chattel slavery in which the slave's whole person was the property of the master. He or she could be raped or maimed or killed at the will of the owner. In older bondservant slavery or an indentured servanthood, the kind that is Paul is speaking of in chapter 6. Only the slaves' productivity, their time and skills were owned by the master, and only temporarily. African slavery, however, was race-based, and its default mode was slavery for life. Also, the African slave trade was begun and resourced through kidnapping. The Bible unconditionally condemns kidnapping and trafficking in slaves. One of the reasons I mention all of this is because there's a number in our days of, of, of what are called the new atheists. Uh, they're not necessarily new. Uh, they certainly are atheists. Uh, and they're writing, condemning, really, Christianity. Christopher Hitchens, for instance, has written a book called God is Not Great. Uh, one chapter says, religion poisons everything. Uh, Sam Harris has written the letter to the Christian nation, the end of faith. Richard Dawkins, you probably know, has written the book, The God Delusion. Each of them references slavery, saying, looking, how can a God who endorses slavery, as we experienced in our history, uh, be a good God? And the answer is, it isn't endorsed, it's condemned. And even this slavery in ancient Rome wasn't condoned necessarily by Paul. It just simply was a fact of life. Christians were a very small minority. To, to do anything socially would have been unthinkable. And so he simply writes to them in their station as they are and says, this is how, even in this context, you are to live. In fact, Paul says to slaves in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you can get out of this, do it. If you can buy your way out, do it. And they could. There, was, there, was, there were ways that slaves could buy their way out of their slavery. They could earn enough, even as slaves. They could serve long enough, even as slaves, to be freed. Other people could free them. And so there was that opportunity. Paul says, you know, if you can do that, do it. It wasn't that this was a, a biblically-based, a creation-based institution. And Paul says, here you are in this circumstance, in this situation. But he did sow seeds, of course, because the gospel sows seeds of being the very destructive force of any kind of slavery. And the destructive seed was this. He had the audacity, Paul did, to speak this truth and says that in Christ... There is no slave or free. In Christ, there's no slave or free. We're all equal. Do you realize that in ancient Rome, no one would have a category in their brain for that? I suspect that in the church in Ephesus, there were both slaves and masters. I suspect when that teaching hit the church in Ephesus, jaws dropped, but there they were. In fact, even here, Paul says something astounding in chapter 6 and verse 2. He speaks to slaves who have Christian masters, and he writes, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Again, how could your brother 
be your property. And so you see this Christianity thing, this faith in Christ thing, this joining together as church thing would destroy that class structure in the midst of church. And so over time, it would deteriorate it in the midst of culture. There was a slave owner by the name of Philemon who had a slave named Onesimus. And Paul writes to this slave owner named Philemon. It's in the scripture, just a one-chapter letter, if you will, written by Paul. And he says, this slave Onesimus who ran away from you and therefore should at least be branded if not killed. Paul said, this slave who ran away from you, I'm sending him back. He's a brother now. Treat him like a brother. Not only that, treat him the same way you'd treat me. So you see the seeds of destruction were there. What's fascinating here too is that Paul writes to these slaves and he says, here's how you're to conduct yourself in a sense as you're serving your master. Now what's interesting about that and important for us, and this is a point we know, but I just want to bring it back to us. What's interesting about that is that Paul is writing to Timothy saying, I'm going to teach you how to conduct yourself in the household of God, but realize that the household of God doesn't simply mean the place where you gather, it's the place where you're scattered to. It's not just the place here, it's wherever you go. I used to love it when we were meeting at Deerfield Elementary School uh, a zillion years ago, back when my hair had color. Uh, And um, people would ask me, when are you going to build your church? And I said, we've already started And they'd say, well, where is it? And I said, all over the place. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, if you don't know what I mean, I don't think I can help you. Because the church isn't the building, you see. We're pretty nerdy. And we call this whole facility the church house. Hyphenated word, right? The church house. And people always say, well, where's the church house? Thinking it's some sort of house that we own in the neighborhood. We said, no, no, the church house is where the church gathers. That's what it is. Now, space is good and, 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 and all of that. We, we like having space and it's good to have space and there's something even significant about having what we might call sacred space, this place where we can come to worship and all of that, a dedicated space for that. It's been a blessing to us and will be, I trust. But, but the point of the matter is that the church is wherever you are. And so when Paul writes to teach the church how to conduct itself as church, He will tell us what to do when we're gathered together, but he'll also tell us to do when we're out from one another. And so he tells these these slaves how they're to live as slaves in the context of life with their master, just like he might tell you, how do you conduct yourself as church in class? How do you conduct yourself at church at home? How do you conduct yourself as church at work? How do you conduct yourself as church at the grocery store? How do you conduct yourself as church at the coffee shop? How do you conduct yourself at church when church isn't gathered? So we mustn't confuse that. And I know that we sort of don't, but we use this awkward and not so good expression like, did you go to church? How can you go to who you are? Right? No, it's all right to say. It gets a little cumbersome to say, did you go to corporate worship, right? <laughs> Please never say the old Southern expression, did you go to preaching? Because worship is more than preaching. 
It's the whole deal, you see, from beginning to end of the service. That's all worship. Don't say, did you like the worship, meaning did you like the singing? Because it's all worship. So if you say, did you like the worship? First of all, that's a bad question to ask anyway. Think about it. Who are you to evaluate that? It's, you should ask God that question. Um, but, but, but the worship is more than just the singing. It's the whole deal. So be specific. You could say, do you like the songs? Or do you like the sermon? Or do you like the prayers? But if you say, do you like the worship? Then, oh, you got to comment on everything. That was just a little aside. Now, what we do here on Sundays as we gather is very significant, you see. But it's limited. It's very significant, but it's limited. So when Paul writes to the church about being church, he writes not only about church gathered, not only about church organized, elders, pastors, and all that sort of thing, but he also then writes about what it's like to be church, how we're to conduct ourselves as church outside of the church house, outside of our gatherings together. You know, again, what I said, when we, when we gather together, it's significant but limited. It's significant. In fact, I would even say it's necessary for us. And the reason it's necessary for us is that God has wired human beings to stop every seven days, one day in seven, and gaze upon him. He established that at creation. That's true for every human being. You realize, then, if if we don't do that, we're likely to forget him. One day in seven, he said, stop and gaze upon me. Get, make sure this whole relationship with me is right, that you're seeing it correctly. Make sure you stop and realize that I'm the creator and you're the one created. Make sure you stop and realize that I'm the one who provides, you're the one who's needy. I'm independent, you're dependent, that everything you have comes from me. If you don't do that, then you'll forget and you'll think it actually somehow depends upon, comes from you. And once we're in that mindset, which is our natural mindset that we must always repent from, get that mindset, you see, then we'll forget God, and then we're lost. And so even in the midst of that, as we come in the context of one day and seven to gaze upon him, what do we do? Well, we we worship. So we we have this order of worship everybody does when they come to worship, whatever it is. But, but, But ours goes like this because we think it's most helpful that we say, who is God? And so we sing something about him that, that shows his, 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 his attributes, who he is. And then we stop and we pray and we say, we need you, God, help us. And then we think of him and, and then we confess our sins because we realize in his presence, just like Isaiah the prophet did. Isaiah the prophet came into the presence of God and he saw God as he was high and lifted up. The scripture says that the train of his robe filled the temple. Think about that. Wouldn't that scare you? To think that God is so big that just the end of the robe that he was wearing filled the whole temple, which was way bigger than this. Could you imagine if a bridegroom was standing here and his bride was to come, and as she did, her whole train filled the temple, filled the whole space? That'd probably scare him. 
thinking, whoa, what have I got? God is huge, you see. Isaiah saw that and it just, it just took him away. And the angels were around the throne of God saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Heaven and earth is full of his glory. And all of a sudden, Isaiah saw himself in the presence of God. And understand, Isaiah was a pretty good guy. At least he was going to the temple. I mean, he was one of the faithful ones. And yet when he saw himself in the presence of God, he realized, I'm needy, I'm a sinner. I've I've rebelled against God the way he put it. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. Meaning everything that comes out of us really is unholy. And I, I see that there's nothing I can say in the presence of God that would be holy enough. And so he says, I'm just, I'm just going to blow up. I'm undone in the presence of God. And you remember what happened? Isaiah hits the floor and, 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 and an angel comes and takes a coal from the altar and presses against his unclean lips and purifies him. And he can stay in the presence of God. You see, that's the renewal that we work through on Sundays when we stop and we gather and we gaze upon God. We see that. Sometimes more dramatically than other times, but we see that. And then we hear of the one who is the very coal from the altar who cleanses. That is our Lord Jesus. And we collectively give a great sigh of relief and gratitude and say, I'm reconciled to God. On Thursday, I almost forgot that. But then we renew that. And then we worship. And then we here in the midst of that worship the very truth of God and receive grace so that we can go. Now when we leave this place it doesn't mean that, that we don't read the word during the week. Sure we do, we read it. It doesn't mean that we don't pray. Sure we do. It doesn't mean that we don't fellowship with other believers for encouragement. Sure we do. It doesn't mean that we don't meditate upon God. Sure we do. This though is that renewal time that helps us fix our lives so that during the other six days we can survive it and continue on. But this is the way God has wired and programmed human beings. People say, should I invite my unbelieving friends to church? And they go, sure. They're actually wired the same way we are. They actually need to stop and gaze upon God one day in seven. And you say, but they won't understand what we're doing. Explain it to them. Don't leave it to me. You know, you can talk while I'm talking. You can go, you know, he's doing this because, he said that because, this is why we're doing this. Now, they may look at you like you're crazy, but you are. Okay? I mean, it's, it's just, we shouldn't be apologetic about it. We just, it's, it's, this is just, we're human beings. God did this at creation. He says, you need to do this. If you don't do this, it's to your detriment. And we see it to detriment that people who don't do this, oddly enough, walk away from God, generally speaking. It's not all that dramatic. It's not all that exciting sometimes. But it's necessary what we do. It's significant. But it's limited, you see. Limited in the sense that we need it, but we need it for the rest of the week so that when we're out and about, when we're church over there, church over there, church over there, church over there, then you see, our mind is fixed upon God 
And so when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he talks to slaves. And he says, now when you're over there, not when you're here, when you're over there, I want you to treat your masters with respect. The reason is so that when people look at your lives, they'll think well of me, that is, well of God. He says, what should be on our minds all the time, and this is what should be fixed in our minds as we gather on Sunday. It's important that our minds are fixed on Sunday, that everything revolves around God. What's most important in all of life is that he is known, he is well thought of, he is well considered, and that anything we do leads to that, that is God being well known, as opposed to him being reviled. And he says, listen, Slaves, when you're in this situation with your masters, especially with unbelieving masters, it's most likely that you won't be able to say anything about Jesus. You know that in your jobs. You know that you're limited in your jobs in witnessing, testifying the truth of Jesus with your lips. You just know that. You're contractually bound. You have a relationship with your employer or with your clients or whoever it is and, 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 and they haven't brought you there to tell them about Jesus. Well, there are times when you can do that and we try to take advantage of every opportunity. You pray for opportunities. I trust you do. But you see, it's your life that will speak, you know, the corny expression, little hallmark kind of Christianity that says, your life is the only Bible that most people will read. That's true. And so Paul says to these slaves, make sure as you're living your life. And, and, and I want to say, Paul, give him a break. He's a slave. Why are you putting this on them? And Paul would say, no, 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 no. He's a free man in Jesus. And so he can live his life in such a way, even in the midst of this cultural slavery, even in the midst of this difficult circumstance, even in this situation where he's not free socially, economically, politically, and so forth, he can live his life as a free man choosing to glorify God in that situation so that his employer and the other slaves around him, his employer's master, his other slaves around him can say how great his God is. And then he says, if you have this master who's a believer, don't take advantage of that situation. The other slaves around you would see that that's unjust. You know, if you have a Christian boss, don't you think sometimes, well, I can be late for work because I've been at a prayer meeting. Surely he'll understand. Or I can, I can, I can be late for work because, because I've been at Bible study, and I'll tell him, and it will be cool with that. He's, he's a believer. But the other workers will see that. And they'll think, that's not fair. Why does that Christian get to do these other things when I don't? And so he says, listen, if you're a slave and your master's a Christian, still don't think of yourself. Think of your master. Notice how he puts it. He says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. In other words, serve your master well because he's a believer and you should want him to prosper. So don't think of yourself. Work harder than all the others to say, this is what believers do. 
I love my master even more because he's a believer and I want him to prosper, so I'm working hard on his behalf. And you want to say, Paul, give him a break. He's a slave. And Paul says, no, 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 no. He's free. And as a free person in Christ, he's free to love and to serve his master with all his heart and to show the goodness of God. One more thing that's astounding about this passage. Paul uses the lives of the marginalized as models for the rest of us. Because you see, the very DNA of a Christian is that of a slave. The very DNA of a Christian is that of a servant. You see, Jesus is more than an example to us, but he's not less. By that I mean this. That Jesus is more than an example. In other words, he didn't just come so we could watch his life and then emulate it and then we're good people. Jesus came to do something for us, something we can't do, which is to atone for our sins, to pay for our sins. And you see, in the paying of our sins then, as we believe in him, our sins are forgiven, we're reconciled to God. He did that. So that's the guts of the gospel, that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. He came to die for our sins, that we might be reconciled to God. But in so doing, you see, we also see his life. His life as the the man who perfectly glorified his father. In fact, the scripture tells us that we're being transformed into his image. We're being conformed into the image of Jesus. And so what would that look like? Well, we look at Jesus thus as our example. So what was a key attribute of Jesus? How did he understand himself? He understood himself as a servant, as a slave. A slave, a servant to his father to come and serve his father. But not only that, to come and to amazingly serve us. There was an occasion in Jesus' relationship with his disciples. It's in Mark chapter 10, verse 35. That helps us here. Let me read. And James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, the sons of Zebedee, they were natural brothers as well. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Did your kids ever do that? Maybe as a kid you did it. You go to your mom or your dad and say, I want you to say yes to this. Nobody's suspicious then. Verse 36. So Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So basically, they came to Jesus and said, listen, we're so wonderful. We're so great as your disciples. And here's what we want you to do. We want the two best seats so we can rule with you. Now, Jesus told them a few things. And then this happened, verse 41. And when the ten heard it, that is the other disciples, the other ten, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Well, of course they did, because they wanted those seats, right? They're saying, how dare you ask first? We, we want those seats. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him, and he, and he said to them, and this is where he lays out our DNA. This is where he lays out our identity. 
He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. What Jesus was saying to James and John and the other ten was, you're acting just like those who don't believe. You want to take authority over all the others. But here's how it is with me. So he goes on to say, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Now that little word servant is the same Greek word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that my translation is translated bondservant, which really is slave. It's the Greek word doulos. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your slave, your servant. And whoever would be first among you must also be slave of all. Isn't that offensive? Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to be great in my kingdom, what I want you to do is be the slave of everybody. Why? Verse 45, he says, for even the Son of Man came to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, because I want you to be like me. I've come to serve, and I want you to be servants as well. We, we read that in this little responsive reading we did from Philippians chapter 2. Right? It speaks of Jesus and his coming. And what's amazing to us is that Jesus actually serves us. He becomes our servant. And what's amazing is that he's like way above us. I mean, how do you categorize the creator of the universe with us? You know, theologians have tried to do that for centuries. And they, they call the great other, the transcendent one, this, this one that's so far above us, God. And yet, this God became man and dwelt among us, our servants, served us, did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, served us. Notice how Paul puts it. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, that means he existed as God, is God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he humbled himself. He says, I'm not going to grab hold of my godness in that sense and the glory that belongs to me. But says, made himself nothing taking the form of a slave, a servant, being found in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that he is our atoning sacrifice and all of that. But as our example, it means that we are to be humbled as well and that we are to serve one another as well. And so Paul what prefaces that, those opening verses that we read, you all read as congregation in the, in the responsive reading, Paul writes... So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul says, complete my joy by becoming of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That is, be like Jesus. Consider their interests. Now, are you and I more significant than Jesus? I, I don't think so. Right? But what did he do? He gave his life for us. He says, now follow my example. I want you to serve one another. 
like that. Now Jesus describes the mindset of a servant. Turn to Luke in chapter 17. Luke in chapter 17. Don't worry, I'm almost done. Some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, he hasn't preached in a month and a half. Luke chapter 17, please. Verse 7. Now, this is one of those very startling statements of Jesus. And when we read a very startling statement of Jesus, we must take it as that. On the one hand, we mustn't miss its sting. We mustn't miss the kicker. Jesus is being dramatic here because he wants to make a point. On the other hand, we have to be careful as we apply it so that we don't misapply it. And I'll get to that in a minute. But this that's so startling to us, however, was probably not that startling to those who heard it. In other words, I would suggest as I read this that we don't have a category in our brain for this. We don't like this. This is an offensive statement. But there were those that heard Jesus say this and said, yes, of course, what's your point? Let me read it. Jesus said, Will any one of you who has a servant or a slave plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come in at once and recline at table? The answer to that is obviously no. Now you and I might think, well sure, if somebody's been working for me all day out in the hot sun and they come in, I'll probably say, hey, you know, come on in, have a glass of water, sit down for a minute in the air conditioning and relax before you get on to your next thing. But, but no. Jesus says, we don't, he's a slave. He would never expect that. If his master said, hey, take a, take a few minutes here and rest, he'd probably think, I bet he's going to kill me. Because it's just, just those things. No one would have thought of that. Slave would have never thought that, oh, good, I'm going to go in for a minute. And my master's going to say, well done. That was really great. You worked out in the field all day. You're really hot. So, so here, just sit down for a minute. That would never cross his mind. Because he was a slave and he knew it. So Jesus said, would he not rather say to him, prepare supper, supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and after, afterward you will eat and drink. In other words, wouldn't the master say and the slave expect the next task? And the master would never think, oh, I bet you're at least as hungry as I am, so why don't you just eat when I eat? No, you eat after I eat. Not only after I eat, but after you clean up what I've eaten. Right? That's when you eat. And the slave would know that. In verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? And after all of that, busy day, lots of work, do you think the master comes up and slides a little thank you note under his door? No, he would never think that. So Jesus said, so you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And I say, no. I want somebody to say thank you. I want somebody to arrest me in the middle of the day. What, what is this? I'm working really hard. Doesn't anybody notice? And Jesus said a slave would never ask that question. Now this isn't telling us that God's like that master. We know how God is. God gives us everything that we need to serve him and bless him. And then we do that which is good and he says, way to go. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the way God is. Jesus doesn't say God's like this master. Nor is he saying we ought to be like this master when people serve us that we shouldn't thank them and all of that. That isn't true. 
He's saying if you have the mindset of a slave, this is how you think. Yes, people are going to be insensitive to you. They're not going to consider your needs, but as a servant, as a slave, that's really not going to bother you. And people aren't going to say thanks. And as a servant, as a slave, that's really not going to bother you. Now again, please, moms, if your kids don't say thank, teach, teach them to say thank you. That's important. If they're inconsiderate, don't take that. They're your kids, you know, deal with them. If you're in a relationship, in a marriage, and it's abusive, this isn't saying be their slave and take everything they throw at you. That's the part that we mustn't apply. But get the point. Get the gist of it. Get the understanding. See, Jesus knows what this means. The next passage is all about that. I won't read it because you know it. This story, there are ten lepers, and they come to Jesus to heal uh, them, and, and he heals them all. And what happens? Only one comes back to say thank you. And that one's a foreigner. And by, by that, Jesus means, I came to the Israelites and they've rejected me, my own people. The only people that say thanks are the foreigners. Who would expect that? Jesus said, weren't ten healed? Why did only one come back? And the point is that slaves don't get thanked, not even Jesus. I don't know if he's giving us some kind of percentage here, but I always operate on the fact that if 10% of the people I serve say thank you, I'm doing at least as good as Jesus did. That's probably right. That's probably what we ought to expect or less, right? I mean, that's just life. And see, he says, no, I want you to have the mindset of a servant, of a slave, and serve, put the other's interests ahead of your own. When Jesus went to the cross... There wasn't anyone patting him on the back with anything other than a whip. There wasn't anybody when he was on the cross saying, oh, thanks. You remember the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took off his clothing, his outer clothing, and, and he gave the appearance as he wrapped a towel around his waist of a slave if you'd walked into that room and someone would have said, who's the master here? Who's the rabbi? Who's the teacher? You wouldn't have picked Jesus because he was the slave. In fact, it's likely you wouldn't even have noticed him. Your eyes would have just glossed by him. And in that culture, you'd think he's just a slave. He's nothing. I don't really need to pay any attention to him. And in fact, if you walked into that room, you would probably just simply take off your dirty sandals and, and you would simply fling your feet at this one who was clothed like that and expect him to wash your feet, you wouldn't, get, you wouldn't make eye contact. You wouldn't, you wouldn't ask him how he's doing. Uh, you, you wouldn't say thank you at the end. You just simply would give him your feet. And in fact, at the end of the day, if somebody would have came to you and said, at that, at that meeting where you went to in that upper room and somebody washed your feet, who was that? You'd say, I don't know. I didn't even look at him. That's what it means to serve. To be the servant. That was Jesus. Lauren Sani, one of the founders of the Navigators, was talking about being a servant, and he said this. He said, you know you have the attitude of a servant by how you react when people treat you like one. You know you have the mindset, you can tell you have the mindset, the attitude of a servant, of a slave, by how you react. When people treat you like one, which means they're inconsiderate, which means they don't say thanks. That's our life, you see. We're to have that mindset like Jesus. How do we do that? Well, we must do that by way of humility, by way of humbling ourselves, by way of 
really getting a good fix, a good understanding of who we are. That's why we need to see ourselves in the presence of God. Because when we see ourselves in the presence of God, we not only see ourselves as created, not creator, not only as dependent rather than being independent, but we see ourselves as unworthy. We see ourselves as sinners. We see ourselves as having rebelled against him. We see ourselves as the best we can do on our own is to merit eternal condemnation. I mean, that's just the bottom line of it. And we get that about ourselves. We really get that about ourselves. Then we really get the expression of Jesus when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We really get it. We really see that, that yes, we are spiritually bankrupt and to receive the kingdom of, to enter into the kingdom of God can only be a gift by him. And he says, yes, it is. And to hear the word, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, comforted by way of forgiveness and reconciliation, being made right with God. We mourn over our sin. Blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. That notion of meekness, what's that mean? Well, a meek person is a person who first has seen themselves in the presence of God, knows who he or she is really as creature-dependent, unworthy, sinner, in need of grace and salvation. And then you take that and you live it out in front of people. You are that person. That person who knows who he or she is in the presence of God. And you live that out. So that means I can't put on airs. I'm not above anybody. Nothing's too low for me. No one's too low for me to help because how could you be lower than one who can only merit eternal condemnation? That isn't a bad self-esteem, by the way. You don't beat yourself up with that. That's just true. It's just true. And it frees you. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in commenting on Blessed are the Meek, said this, The meek person is the person who hears what God and others say about him and are amazed that they speak so highly. That's just to know yourself. People come to me and say, Bill, this is wrong with you. Usually they're right, and I could give them ten more. So you see, we must often find ourselves in the presence of God and be humbled that we may, like Jesus, really serve.